give you praise. We praise you for those three or four that have accepted you. And, and we know that this is only a fraction of, of the many, many things that you've been doing there. We ask you to work in the, in the seeker group. We ask you to be at work in people like Kamla who, who put her hope in you in the midst of a, a difficult trial. We just ask you to be at work. We ask you to be at work in the family of the week, the Gelbs. Lord, we thank you for, for Randy and Diane. We thank you for David and his wife, Monique, and for their little baby within. We thank you for Jonathan and, and all that you've done. And we, we ask you to continue to, to use this family in, in powerful ways. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Hubert. And today we will not have Spanish translation. Um, the Engholms are away. And if you are part of King's Kids, you can head up now to our King's Kids room. Be taught how to be a King's Kid. And you know, I'm a little upset because Pastor Craig was here last week. I wasn't here. And he was able to give you an encouraging message. And I was waiting to be able to give you an encouraging message. Because we've been in Hebrews chapter 6 for a while. Which is not very encouraging sometimes at first glance. Are we losing our salvation here? No, we learned that that was about apostate Christians. But this author is still very, very, very concerned about his people. And so we are going to continue today in a very encouraging message. And uh, I, not that it's uh, not saying anything prideful there, hopefully, but it's a, a message theme, with a theme of encouragement versus a theme of warning, which is what this book is mostly about. And we see the, the, the pattern of our writer, he says, and you know, it's, it's a warning, it's an, an um, encouragement, and it's also hope. And so we're going to see this encouragement and this hope in this passage. So I'm going to start at verse 13 of chapter 6, and we're going to read through down to the end of the chapter. And again, he just gets done talking to uh, them about those people that had fallen away. But he says, you know, I have better things in mind for you. And that's where that encouragement starts. And he tries to give them some even uh, uh, more memories to think back to Abraham in verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, <clears throat> since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. In verse 15. And so, having patiently waited, <clears throat> he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness excuse me, of his purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor to the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. 
where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's what we're going to jump in next week about this Melchizedek. Because as you remember, he starts talking about Melchizedek in chapter 5, verses 10, and then first from verses, uh, chapter 5, verse 11, all the way through the whole chapter 6 is sort of a parenthesis here, saying, look, i got to talk to you about Melchizedek, which is some real serious stuff, but are you even able to handle this sort of conversation? You're still on milk. You need to be on solid food. But yet that's still not an excuse, people. I have, in, I have confidence in you that you will be able to understand these things because you know beyond these fundamentals, you're going to go deeper. I have confidence. I'm looking forward to that thing. And that's how we are. We are like that with our children, right? I don't know how many of you have children here, but I have a 16, 17-year-old. I have a 19-year-old. Um, I have a 16-year-old and a 19-year-old and a 14 and a 10. And I see how some of how God works. The children, when they are little, are only a shadow of what they are to become as it relates to their personality, their skills. It's only a shadow of what it is they are to become. And what we have to do is we have to be patient with them. And we have to gradually give them confidence as they move on to maturity. If we don't give them confidence along with the, with the guidance of the rod or whatever other guidance we give, then what, uh, what happens is, is it becomes legalistic for them and they don't do it. And this is the same way with the Hebrews. What this writer is doing is he's, he's, he's trying to give them confidence. Like if you were to take a child out fishing, you know, a little, a little guy, and he goes out and he throws a fish, he gets his line tangled and it's all this stuff. And, you know, if, if you have one of those first fishing trips with your kids, it's terrible because then they never want to go fishing again until they're older. So I remember as I would, get, uh, I would get the fish on the hook, we would just, you know, just get bread and hot dogs and whatever and just sort of get the fish on the hook and then let my little guy reel it in and then get the fish on the hook and then let him reel it in. Increase his confidence with fishing. That's what this, this author is doing here with these people in Hebrews. He's trying to tell them, look, you have to learn. You have to understand these things. And I'm going to give you some confidence as it relates to this. And the first aspect of confidence I want to give you, people, is if you didn't know it or not, you are a child of Abraham. It says it right there in verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and surely multiply you. And the Hebrews are going, but wait a minute, we don't understand this. Well, we know that the seed, that, that Abraham's seed is going, to pull, is going to populate the whole world. We know the blessing, but we just don't see how all this is working out with Jesus, who was supposed to be a Messiah that was supposed to reign, and now he's a dead Messiah that rose from the dead. And what's going on here? And they're confused. And so he's telling them, you are also a child of the one that God chose out of a pagan nation. He wasn't even a Jew, really. 
I mean, he was from the line of Shem and from that line, but there wasn't a Hebrew religion. There wasn't a Judaism or anything. God basically continued his Adam project. Adam failed, and now Abraham, you are going to be the one to carry the seed. And I am going to give this job to you, not because of who you are, but because of my covenant with you. I am, you, Abraham, are going to be God, my choice, God's choice to bless the whole entire world and all the nations. And Abraham's like, all right, um, you, you know that I'm like really old and, and I'm having a hard time even crawling out of bed let alone my wife, Sarah, who's very old as well and beyond childbearing years. What's going on here, Lord? What's going on? Well, you see, he says here that you're a child. You are part of this promise. The fact that you are now a Christian and the fact that you are now taking and putting the law in its proper place doesn't negate the law but it also doesn't negate the promises that God made to Abraham concerning his seed in Jesus. That promise concerns you, he's telling them. He said, because this was the confusing thing with Abraham at first. He said, okay, you're going to give me a child. Great, it may be Eleazar. It may be Ishmael. This could work. This is what they did back then when a woman couldn't bear a child. They would get, uh, you know, he would bring another, he would marry someone else or a concubine and she would carry on the line and she would actually give birth in between the legs of the woman that she's carrying the seed for. So it's technically her baby for her seed. There's a whole ritual that they did with that. And so Abraham's like, cool, this will work. But God's like, you didn't really understand what I said. I said, you meaning your seed, you, out of your body. Listen, he says here, now look towards the heavens and count the stars. Genesis 15, 5. If you're able to count them. And then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. But before that, he says, behold, uh, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, meaning Ishmael. The one will come forth from your own body. So that was the key because this was the miracle. Isaac was the one where the promise would come through. Isaac. And Abraham knew that God was going to come, come through for his promise, but it didn't happen immediately when he got it. God promised Abraham that he would multiply him greatly the minute he met him. If you look in Genesis 12, you don't hear much about him. You hear about his father in 11 and maybe Abram at the end of the very last verse. And then he's called out from Ur and he's chosen by God. And he's now told he's going to be, the nations are going to be blessed. And he does a lot of mess, messing up and things like that. But could you imagine how frustrating it must have been after a couple years of waiting? Sarah's still not pregnant. Then even more, a couple decades, Sarah's still not pregnant. I'm frustrated, Lord. Did you give up on me? You promised me certain things. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I believed you, remember? I believed you. You counted it as righteousness. I'm righteous, Abe. Come on, help me. Be here. 
He didn't hear anything. How would you wait in that situation? We have such a hard time waiting for anything. And that's, I believe, one of the reasons why we're so poor at prayer is because we, are, we, we don't want to wrestle with God in prayer. We want to say prayers and we want God to hear us. But God's like, that's not what I want. I want to be here with you in the process. Like Pastor Craig said last week, God wants us to consider things. So he creates these long processes so we can be in the minutia of what God's doing in our life. And we could, we could do this, but we, we get impatient. We want it now. Instead of saying, Lord, your will be done, I'm going to sit, I'm going to wait, and I'm going to trust. That's what he's trying to say. Yes, that's what Abraham was. He was our model for that. But this author is saying you need to do the same thing. He believed God. That's what our job is. When they asked Jesus, what, is it to, what do we do to do the works of God? What did he say? The work of God is this. Go out and be a really good person. Follow all the commandments. No, he said, believe on the one whom he has sent. Because with one swift punch, you do everything when you believe in Jesus. You take care of all the needs. In one swift punch, you completely fall in line as a child of God with Jesus. There's nothing else needed. It's Jesus. And now you are a part of his promise. You are a part of that people, as we'll see here. He always keeps his promises. Do you understand what that means? Because I have a hard time understanding it because I don't know anyone who does that. I know people who have a propensity to be very loyal and very truthful and do everything they can to keep their promises. I'm not saying there aren't people like that, but they fail. I'm one of them. Okay? I'm not saying... Believe me, it's hard. God, not only does He keep His promises, but it's impossible for Him not to keep His promise. God could never go on Survivor on that TV show. He'd have to lie. You can't lie and be God. God, it's impossible for him to lie. It's not part of his character. Satan is the father of lies. He started the whole lying thing. But God always keeps his promises, and he will always keep his promise to you. But what does that mean? Does that mean he's promising to give you a new car? I don't know, maybe. I know, I know this that he promises always to take care of you. There'll never be a Christian that is not taken care of by God. There won't be. I'm not saying there'll never be a Christian in need or there'll never be a Christian that, that has every single thing they want. But you're God's child and he has his eye on you. And where you are right now, now in your life with your walk is where God wants you to be. Maybe it's in a miserable spiritual condition. Or maybe it's on top of the mountain. Or maybe it's you're on a new journey to start a whole new career. Or maybe you're on a journey of bankruptcy. I don't know. But God is taking you through it. He doesn't take you out. He takes you through. He's not a God of taking out. He's a God of taking through. He's a purifying God. And that's what he wants to do with you. So why this oath and promise? That's what he's talking about here. He's saying that God... 
Here's, this is what the Hebrew writer is saying. This promise is so real that God not only promised it, but he promised it with an oath. Okay, he promised it with an oath. Let me show you what I mean here. So he says here, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. This is a portion of many Old Testament scriptures, primarily Genesis twenty two seventeen, but you can see it in Genesis 12. You can see it in Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and then Genesis uh, 20, and then Genesis 20. The promise over and over, I'm going to bless you, 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 and it's going to be through your seed. And then guess what? He shows up again, God, and says, next year this time, you hundred-year-old man, your wife is going to have a baby in her 90s. She's like, oh. And guess what? It happens. Praise the Lord. Good. The kid grows up a little bit. Now take him up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him to me. Talk about Abraham's patient waiting. But by that time, God had known. You see, this is the thing. As we, or Abraham had known, as we get more accustomed to trusting the Lord, we build more and more and more confidence to the point where we could say, well, my son is given to me as the promise to bless all the nations by God. God is telling me to take him up there. Daddy, what are we doing? What are we doing? No, I shouldn't say daddy. Yo, dad, what are we doing? He was old, probably like 16, 17, you know. Son, uh, we're going up for a sacrifice. Well, well, where's the animal? Well, God's going to provide the sacrifice, son. Abraham knew. And we learn in the New Testament that even if God did cause Abraham to kill his son, Abraham knew God will raise him from the dead. That's his confidence in this because it was an oath and it was a promise. God made this oath. He made this promise. <clears throat> you see, God swore by himself because there's no higher way to swear. There is no higher way to do this. <clears throat> there had to be this oath that he took because in God's world, it's awful. In, in God's economy, it's about justice. It's about order. You can almost say it's about, it has a judicial fabric that runs through it. God is not unjust in anything that he does. So he's not just saying, don't worry, Abraham, I'm God, dude. I'm not going to mess up. you. I'm going to keep my promise. I'm God. No, God did a covenant. He did a ritual. God said, here's what we're going to do. I am going to make this promise and make the oath because without the oath, the promise isn't binding. There's no legal repercussions. You can make an oath <clears throat> and then a promise, you're bound by that. We call that a contract, an oath. Hey, listen, I'm going to buy your house. Yeah, we'll sign this contract. No, 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 just trust me, I'm going to buy it. I promise. No, next one. There's no buy, there's, you have nothing there, there's no repercussions. This is why living together is so popular. A man and a woman, they live together. And you know what? It's okay. It's cool. We made a promise to each other. Really? Why not an oath? Well, I don't make an oath. You know, it's just, yeah, so it's, you're doing nothing. 
You're living in what God would call a situation that appears to be evil. And you're living in a situation where you're going to fail and be on your knees repenting a lot. And it's going to be a burden situation for you in that situation. Trust me, I know. My wife and I did before we got married, before, right as we were living together, we got saved. And we were like, we're going to get married. And we went to Calvary Chapel, Old Bridge, and they were like, no, you're not. You're not getting married. And we were like, show us where. We were babes, right? So, you know, we, we did a half effort of not living together until we got married. And that was disastrous, but we got through it. It's hard. There's no oath. Once you make that oath, now you'll fight for that promise. And that's what God did. He made this oath. He made this promise. Lower gods in this ancient Near East sort of mentality is they would always swear to the higher gods. But with God, there was no one higher. You can't go to anything higher. The ancient Near East, all these other countries were polytheistic, meaning they, everything was a god. You would have the hymnal god, and you would have the water god, and the water god's a little higher than the hymnal god. So you would go to this for things that are a little bit more serious. And there would even be different gods for different things. You know, the god of reading would be the book. Uh, this would be a book. Who knows? Who knows what it is? I'm making this stuff up as I go along. But... They would pray and swear by higher gods, but God could not do that because in monotheism, one God, there are no lesser gods. There are no greater gods. So God gives this promise, and this is what I love about it. He doesn't give the promise just for Abraham and said so that it could be on record. He doesn't just make the promise and say, yep, it's going to be from Abraham. The Messiah is going to come from him. The new creations and the new earth, heavens and the new earth are all going to be populated by his seed. He does all that for Abraham and tells him that. But he says here, look at this here. It says that, let me find out. This is verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. And the beginning of the verse says, in the same way, God desiring even more to show the, the heirs of the promise, you, the unchangeableness of his purpose. God doesn't change. Psalm 102.27, your years will not come to an end. Jesus Christ is the same today, he is the same yesterday, and he is the same forever. Or to quote it exactly, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Means never does, is Jesus going to be come up with some sort of different philosophy about the promise that he made. Yeah, like, I made the promise, but it's not quite exactly like that. No. God made this promise to Abraham so that way he can know that so that way we can know that that same God is from back then that made Abraham the promise by grace before the law even came in. We can look back and say, this applies to us too. Why? Because God's showing us here. He wants to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose. Now think how encouraging, how encouraged the Hebrews would be to hear that. 
that are reading this for the first time, they're, they're going, oh, okay, so the, it is the same promise. You know, we're not to wait for some sort of different version of Jesus to come. This is really it. He is the promise. And that's really the main thrust of the, past, of the whole passage. I would, I would have to say, if, if, if I could label this sermon something, it would be, God wants us to have strong encouragement about his promise to save you, rescue you from the dominion of darkness, walk with you in your new life, and take your walk with Christ and use what you do for him for the building towards his new creation project that he's doing. God saves us for a purpose. He saves us for a valuable purpose, a unique purpose that's only like you. That's only you. You're the only one that carries that purpose. Now, you may share the same type of purpose with other people, but your uniqueness can only reach certain people. Your uniqueness can only be implemented in certain situations. So he promises to carry you through, through to the very, very end. And so this is an incredible hope that we have. He says it right here that this hope is like an anchor to our soul. An anchor to our soul. He says, um, we're to take refuge and have strong encouragement, take hold of the hope of God's promise. It goes much more than God's promise just to save me from hell. Much more than that. Thank you, Lord, that you've saved us from judgment. But now, like the Hebrews were told, let's move on from those foundational things. Let's Let's move on from those basics. Let's not forget them. They're the foundation of our faith. But you're saved for a purpose, man. You're God's people. That's what he's telling these people. You want to go back to the old? When you have all the promises of the law and the prophets right here? This concept of an anchor is, is, is unique. Is. <clears throat> The way that it's phrased here, and again, if you, if you were with us from, from the beginning, you know that this is one of the most beautifully written letters in all of the New Testament Greek. It's a very well-written letter, and the, the author knows what he's doing on how he puts things together, and it's underlying back to the Old Testament, and there's so many cool things underneath. But listen, listen to this here. He ties in a couple of concepts together. He says in verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered into as a forerunner for us. So the picture here, again, when you think entering into the veil, what are you thinking about? The Old, Test Old Testament, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, when the priest, once a year, would go into the, the holy place, which is a, a big tunnel, probably about as big as this room, really, really, really high, 
It had the candles. It had the showbread. It had a couple of things just for him to get in there. Forget about it. He had to do so many different things, right? Then he would go into the most holy place. So there were two veils, really, really high, probably high as a ceiling, if not more, probably about as wide as this gap. And the, whole, and the high priest would go in there. You know, he would be tied with bells in case he died and got struck dead so he could be pulled out. But he would go inside there and make atonement for the people. What this this writer, I think, is tying in here is that Jesus, being that anchor, anchors us into that holy of holies with him. There's nothing that can break it as it relates to assurance. So Jesus has entered in as the anchor to our soul. I was curious, like preachers try to come up with cool things to say in the sermon. So the anchor in the chain system of the USS Ford is 30,000 pounds, because I had to find out, of course, what the heaviest anchor was in the world. So you would think I'm super smart up here and really into what I'm doing. So believe me, though, 30,000 pounds for an anchor, right, Fred? I mean, you were in the Navy. That's crazy. Each link weighs 136 pounds. Each link. And I just thought of that anchor sinking now down into the ocean and then burying itself, what, hundreds of feet maybe into the ocean floor? How secure is that? There's nothing that's going to pull that thing out other than some sort of mechanical energy that's generated from the ship. But for for, for the sake of our analogy, this is nothing compared to us being tied. Jesus is the immovable anchor. He's, he's Thor's hammer. Oh, that was cheesy. He's unmovable. You can't, you can't move him. But what does that have to do with us? We are tied into the holy of holy place. We are able now to fellowship with God because of the blood of Christ. We're able to go in there. And that was the promise from the very beginning. Is that I'm going to be able to dwell with all my people. That's, God's, that's what God said. And so the picture of the Holy of Holies is very cool because when Jerusalem comes down out of heaven in Revelation, um, it's, it's a, a um, magnified version, the new Jerusalem, of that perfect square of the inner sanctuary of the Holy of Holies. The picture we're getting here is that God is going to dwell with his people. There's going to be no temple. We are going to be in that place of perpetual joy and peace with God, with a new body, with a new purpose, I believe. Because the Bible says there's ages to come as well. In the future ages, Paul talks about. God says we're going to rule next to him, with him. We are also going to rule angels. There's things to do. And it's not going to be some new version. It's going to be you but a very more you than you've ever been you before. You're going to be purely human, the human you were made to be because of that promise. And so this is what he's giving them here. You're still included in this hope. Don't think because you're leaving Judaism that you're leaving God. No, you're actually coming close to God because Jesus fulfills all of it. There's no more law to follow. There's no more badge of of, of membership called, you know, Jewish Commonwealth or whatever it is. The badge of membership now is faith in Jesus Christ. 
And so this is this anchor. This is this, this, this incredible path that our forerunner Jesus has paved for us into the Holy of Holies. It's guaranteed we can take refuge in it, not only with the fact that we're going to go there one day and really literally be there with him physically, but we also have this access now through prayer and through faith and through trust. We have this access. The Bible says we are seated with him in the heavenlies in Ephesians 1. That's pretty cool, right? I love that. When you read through the Bible and you see the words in Christ, it's probably used about 16, 17 times, maybe more by Paul. I want you to think of that like you're in Christ, like you're stepping in Christ and you have this like in just you're surrounded by his righteousness. You're surrounded by his glory and you are technically in him. He's in you. And as he says in John 17, the Father and Christ are both in us. We're one, they're all one, they're one, so they're in us. So when you're in Christ, you're in those promises. You're in, not in heaven. You're not, I'm not talking about getting in heaven. That's coming. Yes, you got that. That's the, order, that's the appetizer, okay? The new creation, the resurrected life is what the whole book of Acts is about. It's what the whole New Testament is about. We're going to be with Christ in heaven, and then he's going to return, and he's going to make all things new. This is the promise that we have. And there's innumerable other ones that come with this as well. You could look it up. Just look at all of your redemptive, all of the redemptive qualities of all the different aspects of doctrine in the Bible, and you could know salvation, justification, sanctification, resurrection, glorification, that and, and mostly, guys, that God, too, is sanctification. He's going to be with you while you're doing this. Let's not forget about the Holy Spirit. He comes upon us in power, but he's always in us. And he's always giving us that, that, he's giving us that conscience, that guide, and that he's moving us towards God's will, towards to do what God wants us, wants, um, he wants for us. <clears throat> Unfortunately, unbelievers have promises too. And why do I mention that here? Not just to end the sermon with, uh, you better watch out, right? No, because this is just at the tail end of one of the strongest, most fearful rebukes in the entire Bible. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and they tasted the good word of God and the the power of the ages to come and they've fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again unto repentance. And you know that whole passage that we talked about. But then he says, but for you, my beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. So he's telling them, you have this full assurance, but if you go apostate and you leave and blaspheme Christ and you turn away from him and cause him shame, then you're not going to be able to come back, nor you're not going to want to come back. It's not that God wouldn't take them back. That's whenever we go, God can take them back again. No, it says they're not able to to be renewed again under repentance. They don't want to be doing it. They can't do it because it's impossible for them. Their heart is so hard. 
All things are possible with God. But this is a general normative warning from a pastor. And then he gives this great encouragement. But again, we have to say for those promises for the unbeliever is the one promise is that unbelief will not be forgiven on the day of judgment. Not doubts, not periods of unbelief in your life. Those will be forgiven. Those God brings, always brings us back. But there'll be people that don't want to be with Christ. There's no such thing as saying, oh yeah, I'm going to live like a heathen here and, and live like hell. And now uh, all of a sudden I'm gonna, I die and now I want to be holy and be with God. No, you're not going to want to do that. So the promises to the unbeliever are the exact opposite. Separation outside of the people of God. Outside of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the way that's, that's um, I would say, for lack of a better way, that's positive, right? Because I believe God is everywhere, but separated from all things from God that are good and joyful. God offers you, number one, man's biggest need, forgiveness of sins. You can't cover your sins any other way. There's two ways. Christ's blood and your work separated from God for eternity because that's how long it takes to cover your own sins. Eternity. Doesn't, in other words, you can't. And that's, God's not cruel. He doesn't enjoy sending people to hell. It's, he's just. And so, but why would we give up such a great salvation? That's, that's what, that's what he started out in chapter, I think in chapter two. Why are you neglecting such a great salvation? Why are you drifting? Stop. There's no, there's no neutrality. Settle the issue. You got these promises, but you have to obtain these promises through faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Let's pray. The gospel is our only hope, Lord. We thank you for Christ, Lord. We thank you, God, for sending him and, and at the cross, Lord, doing a work so powerful and, and spiritually transforming that, we, that we'll be considering it all through eternity, Lord. And Lord, only you could change the heart. So God, I pray here, if anyone's heart needs changing, that you would do it. And I pray that you would meet each of us here, Lord, and press on that little issue, press on that button. And if, Lord, we don't know you, if there's someone here that doesn't know Jesus Christ, we pray for him right now or her right now. Whoever is listening, maybe you don't know Christ, just call out to him. Just cry out to him. Give him your life. Ask him to forgive you. He'll take away every sin, past, present, future. He'll give you a new life. He'll give you a, the, the Holy Spirit. And he'll take care of you and provide for you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, let's all stand together. We'll have our last worship song, then the benediction and doxology.